one more service to listen to that a second time. <laughs> it's really, really good. Thank you. Um, well, good morning, everybody. My name is Chris Walker. I'm the lead pastor here at the church. Good to see you all. Welcome if it's your first Sunday here. Uh, glad to have you among us. Um, we are, as uh, Peter said, going to dive into Genesis here in just a second. Um, I forgive my voice today. I've got over a little bit of a cold, as well as I just started to get a migraine this morning. So if you could pray for me as I preach. Uh, I get auras with this too, so I can't see very well. So <laughs> I'm not a very good extemporaneous preacher. So this could be interesting. Uh, I need my notes. So uh, hopefully it'll pass here in a second and the pain won't be too bad. But um, if you could just in your mind pray, I'd really appreciate that. But we'll see how, how we do. Um, but we are in Genesis 3 right now, uh, which is the third chapter of the Bible. This is the, first, this is the first book of the Bible. If you didn't know that, Genesis, it means beginnings. And so all of Genesis, it kind of t- collectively, tells a story of beginnings, how God created the world, how sin entered the, entered the world, which is uh, a big topic for today, and how he begins his rescue plan, his plan of redemption to restore all things uh, through uh, what ultimately is a family, uh, Abraham and his, his kin, uh, as it points ahead to Jesus Christ millennia later, uh, which we'll, uh, we've been anticipating him, though, and that's, if you didn't know that, that's, uh, that is not, not just a way, it's the way, the, the scriptural way to read the Bible. And it's nice we don't have to kind of poke around the darkness to, to guess at this and to know how to read the Bible, because the Bible reads it a certain, itself a certain way, and that is to read the old as though it's anticipating the new, to read the former things as though they're pictures and whispers of latter things. So Christ himself is very present in these early chapters. Uh, he's there in a very implicit a prophetic, whispering, typological kind of way, but he is there, as the New Testament helps us to see, and uh, we'll be seeing more of that uh, here today. With uh, Genesis 3 in mind, though, um, and I, you guys have been here a while, you know that I don't say this very often, um, and, but I'm not exaggerating when I say this is by far uh, one of the most important chapters in the whole Bible. So if you can understand what we're talking about today, some of you may have never read this before, and that's great. We're glad you're here. It's great that you're here for the first time getting this. It's not an exaggeration to say this. Uh, to understand Genesis 3, the problem, is to understand accurately the solution of God, to understand Christ and what he did for us on the cross. To misunderstand Genesis 3 is to misunderstand the solution, because you can't, you can't separate problems and solutions. You, know, you don't see someone drowning and say, I'm going to throw them a sandwich. They're not hungry. They're drowning right? You, you can't do that. So the, the problem and solution always go together. What you deem the problem of scripture will necessitate, it will dictate uh, what you see this, the, the solution being uh, and what Christ was all about, what he came into the world to do, what was happening on the cross, what his teachings were about, what the miracles typified, what the empty tomb was all about and, and, and everything like that. So we'll touch on a lot of that today and next week, kind of a, a two-parter here. We're in the first 13 verses today. Of, of chapter 3, and next week we'll uh, wrap up with some things, so it's kind of a part, uh, part 1 and, and part 2. So a uh, so very important part of the scriptures. All scripture is God-breathed, the Bible says, but not all scripture is equally important. Just understand that tension here. Uh, you, you know, if, if you're, someone asks you who's not a Christian yet, if you're a Christian, uh, tell me about the essence of the, sto- the biblical storyline, you'll be selective in what you give them. You're not just going to randomly open this up and say, well, all of it's completely equal, so here's something in numbers for you. Or, or, or Leviticus, like you wouldn't do that. You'd say, let's go to the Gospels. Let's, let's talk about Jesus. Let's read some of the Genesis 3. We'll talk about sin. You'd be selective in what you gave them. And so all scriptures God breathed, but not all scripture is created equal in every sense of the, of the word. The, like any story, there are more important parts. Like any movie, we'd summarize. We'd, we'd hit on the, 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 the beginnings and the climax and the characters and so forth. Not every detail. 
So it's the same with the scriptures. All of it's God-breathed, all of it's inspired, all of it's profitable for us, but not all it's equally important. Genesis 3, though, is one of those kind of high-tier places in the scriptures that we have to know well. We have to understand what's going on here to understand the storyline uh, better and, and just accurately. So let's, um, let's read this now while we're in uh, three, cha- uh, chapter 3, verse 1. Um, Yep, so let's start in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of any fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some of her husband who, who was to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman you gave, you gave to be here with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this chapter of scripture. It's a sobering, sobering look, not just into Adam and Eve's experiences, but really all of ours, as this is typical of how we have all, uh, all of us treated you, uh, whether passively or actively, uh, usually both, many times, even uh, just unknowingly uh, throughout the day. So, um, God, I pray that you help us to learn more about ourselves and to understand our enemy as well and understand you better. There's a lot of moving parts here, a lot of characters, key characters here uh, that we're introduced to and, and we see again uh, primarily in yourself and, and Christ uh, hinted at here even early on in the story. So help us understand the storyline better that we might uh, be saved through it, get joy through it, and be protected from false doctrine through it as well. In Christ's name we pray, amen. All right, so I want to just summarize the first part of this a little bit by looking at this uh, idea, not just idea, but the character of Satan. Uh, The first three words here in verse 1 are, now the serpent. And uh, one of the nice things about this passage, too, is is we get to understand our enemy. It's kind of a know thy enemy (laughs) uh, passage of scripture. We don't see Satan talk a lot in the Bible. A little bit in Job, uh, a little bit in the Gospels when Jesus interacts with him and clashes with him. Uh, rebukes him and so forth and, and, uh, and, so, and, and all of that, but that's pretty much it. And so, and this is the first time we see this. This is the first time Satan speaks, and it's probably the, the, the uh, best, if that's the right word for it, probably not, but the best, the best one in the sense that we learn a lot uh, from his uh, actions towards Eve and, and Adam by extension and, um, and his MO and, and so forth and what sin is. And, and so uh, Satan enters the scene here, uh, now the serpent, and in Genesis 3, 1 then, If you're reading this uh, cover to cover, this book, this is a major break in the story. So before this, remember, God's created everything out of nothing. He's made things, uh, everything in six days, rested on the seventh. 
uh, the pinnacle of his creations, human beings. He places them in this garden that is called Eden, and it's, everything's euphoric, uh, it's uh, utopic. Uh, it's very good in God's eyes. Um, it's complete, it's harmonious, it's blessed. It's wedding-like. Uh, weddings just occurred, the first wedding of history. It's basically like a, the perfect wedding, uh, the, the first and, and best wedding of history, really, in, in a lot of ways, uh, has, uh, has occurred, and it's, a, it's like the greatest garden wedding reception. And it's, so it's, uh, again, it's utopic, it's harmonious, it's blessed, there's no sin, uh, it's wedding-like, and then Satan enters the scene. So 3-1 is this starch, a stark kind of uh, break in the, in the pattern. He enters as a serpent uh, with a clear intent in, to tempt humanity away from God, uh, to disobey him. And now a couple things on, on Satan. We don't know anything at this point in Genesis. If you're just reading Genesis you know, 1 and you haven't read anything else from the Bible yet, we don't know anything about him at all from Genesis thus far. But from elsewhere in the Bible, we know that he was an angel of the highest order, comparable to Michael, if, if you know him, another archangel, uh, who through jealousy uh, rebelled against God, Satan did, and, and a third of the angelic host uh, with him, who became known as, as demons. Uh, Lucifer is another name, which means, I think, uh, a bright morning star, a biblical name for him in Isaiah. Uh, Satan is just a, a word that means uh, adversary. Uh, accuser, another name for him, the devil, uh, but uh, here he takes the form of a serpent, and so he's just called um, the, the serpent, but we know from other scriptural angles that through jealousy he rebels against God, he takes a third of the angelic host with him, who later become known as demons, and they, uh, in their own way, uh, fall from grace or fall from, fall from heaven. This all happens sometime then after people were created and Genesis 3.1. We don't know exactly when or how that takes place. But if you want a cool book on this, I don't know if you guys have read the, uh, the Action Bible before. It's like a graphic novel version of the Bible. My son loves it. He's like literally reading the whole thing. It's like, like awesome. He's going to be, you know, he's seven. He's going to read the whole Bible. At least it's, it's depicted here. It's uh, in, in this, I don't know if every uh, passage is in it, but most. Anyway, the same guys that did or people that did um, the Action Bible did this great uh, complimentary piece called um, The Battle Begins, I think it's called. Uh, it's a shorter thing, but it's just the story of creation mixed with seeing uh, Michael and Lucifer, Satan, uh, you know, pre-fall, just talking, and you kind of get a sense for how Satan's being attempted away himself, or I guess that's not the best word for it, but lured away by his own kind of hardened heart, uh, jealous that people are in the image of God and not angels, and kind of worried about God's kind of removing his favor uh, over him, and, and just it kind of leads into this fall thing. And so some of it's artistic license, some of it's speculation, but I think, personally, I think it's spot on, and if you're interested in reading more, uh, I would encourage you to find uh, that and pick it up. Or if you want to borrow ours, you can, you can uh, uh, certainly, certainly do it. So, all right, so how do we know all this? Again, I, I mentioned from some scriptural angles or glimpses from the prophets and the gospels and the New Testament, the book of Revelation, we piece all this together in terms of who he is, what happened, but also by looking at our own hearts. And, and I want to, we'll, we'll talk more about this today. We, we know about Satan, what happened here from glimpses we get in the scriptures. Not a ton of detail. But I think we also know how he fell from heaven. What exactly happened there by looking at our human beings' own hearts. Because as the story goes, this is Jesus' words, we are, or we were, if we are Christians, Satan's children. That's what Jesus says about humanity. We're the children of the devil, uh, children of Satan, until we're not. Until God adopts us, out, adopts us out of that family and that state into his family, we're all born into being kind of of his seed or of his ilk, um, the, the scriptures say. A lot to say about that. We're not going to uh, 
uh, too much today from the Gospels of perspective, but um, actually I will quote Jesus a little bit later on that. You'll see uh, where that's coming from, from John 8. Um, but So in other words then, in, in, as an example, our propensity not to be a seeker of God's fame, if we in any way do not want that, if we don't care about God getting more famous in the world and in our life, is a whisper of Satan's heart. And so if there is a link between Satan and us, and there is, uh, then I think we can look, kind of reverse engineer this thing and look at our hearts and say, well, we know what happened in heaven. We know how Satan fell because we are full of ourselves. We're arrogant. And so therefore he was. This is what happened in the beginning. He was arrogant before, before God, wanted fame, was jealous of God's glory, but also of human beings being in the image of God and not angels who are kind of the greater creatures, you could say, more powerful ones in one sense, and, uh, and he fell. So all this is going to lead us into talking more about sin here uh, shortly, but I do want to acknowledge that, that there's a slew of questions here about Genesis 3 and related uh, sections of scripture here that beg to be answered, like, you know, why did Satan take the form of a serpent? Uh, where was God during all this exchange? Where's Adam? Why did Satan approach Eve and not Adam? Uh, didn't Eve think it was weird that a snake was talking? <laughs> um, why is there a tree at all that they weren't supposed to eat from? Why did God even create that tree? Uh, these are all great questions with answers uh, that I'm not going to answer today. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, I, I want to focus more on what it is saying, not what it's not. And, and so, but I mean, by all, you're not, don't feel bad for wondering that. Those are, I wonder that. Those are great questions. I'd love to talk more if you'd like some other time. But, um, I want, but I want to focus more on the question he poses, Satan does here, and the way he poses it. And then later we'll talk about the tree of Morality, essentially, a tree of knowledge of good and evil, the nature of sin, and, and then how God responds. It's, it's crucial to see this. Uh, what God does immediately after sin enters the world and all things are cursed. Uh, what, what he does, how he acts, how he speaks, is uh, paradigmatic. We, we need it. Uh, we need it <laughs> as sinners. So we'll, we'll get there later. All right, so going back, though, to the first part of this, uh, Satan says, and he speaks right away to Eve, he approaches Eve, and gets right to it. He says, did, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? You know, and, and we could add here, I think the spirit of this is, it seems a little harsh or, or absolute. Did he really say that? Did God actually say that, that you can't eat of any tree? And it's clever here because he knows that God did not command abstinence from, from every tree, just the one tree. But the way he poses it is, did God say, you know, uh, you can't eat of any tree? But he, he poses it this way because he wants Eve to hear herself saying this, that, that, that God said, and Eve re responds basically by saying, God said we, we uh, could eat from all the trees, but we couldn't eat from the one tree. And this is how Satan works. He, he, he makes one of the ways, one of his MOs is making God out to seem unreasonable, making God uh, out to be the bad guy. And, uh, and, and as we're going to be saying here throughout today, this is not just a once in history lie. This is an ongoing lie. This is a know-your-enemy passage. We have to know this, you guys. If you're not a Christian, please understand this. If you are a Christian, please understand that the devil is a, a real creature. We can't see him. He's a real, angelic, fallen being who hates you, the Bible says. Hates you. And is constantly warring against you. He's constantly lying to you. And so a lot of our lack of joy in life, a lot of our, our harm comes to us when we believe lies. And so... We're going to keep hearing this lie. And so you can think about, actually think about your life on, on those same terms. So, you know, Satan here is making God seem unreasonable. 
He's spinning things. But have you ever thought God seems harsh before? Have you ever thought that when you're reading the Bible or just when you're thinking about him? God seems kind of harsh in this passage or he just seems harsh to me in my life. That thought is from the pit of hell. It's a spun uh, untruth, a spun falsity uh, that, God is, that, that Satan is trying to uh, cast a seed of into your heart. Or the idea of questioning certainty. You know, when Satan here says, did God actually say that? Did God actually say it? Uh, you know, have you ever thought, did, did God actually say he loves me in the Bible? Did he, I know the Bible says that about 10,000 times, but let's just forget that for a second. Did he actually say that? You kind of leave the Bible over here, leave the church over here. Did he actually say he loves me? Did God actually rise from the dead? Did that actually happen? Did he actually, did he actually say that he was God? Did Jesus say that? Did, did Jesus actually say that he was the son of God? Did he actually perform all those miracles? Again, pit of hell lies. There are things we don't know, and there are things we can be absolutely certain of. Don't confuse the two. Satan wants to kind of introduce this seed of doubt and seed of uncertainty, and sometimes in the, under the guise of, you know, humility, it's not really humility, it's false humility, we can be more about, you know, let's just kind of, in higher academics, this is kind of the thing sometimes where we can be about asking the question. <laughs> Remember, like, I always got that from a number of individuals, and uh, when I was in seminary, which is, can be fine sometimes, but it's also like, let's just ask the question and not be so sure of things. Kind of like, because we're humbly approaching these things, we're not just kind of like going to back into things that were forced on our throat when we were kids. It's like, fine, ask the question, be sure of what you believe, that's great, but don't go so far with that that you're never sure. Jesus said he was God. Jesus said he loves you. Jesus said that he died for your sins. Jesus said if you believe in him, you will be saved forever, and that, that, that's enough. We can be certain about that. So the, 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 the thoughts of, did he actually say that? Finds its origins uh, back in Genesis 3. So just some examples of how that lie can be kind of disseminated uh, down throughout history and into our own hearts and minds um, as, as well. So Eve responds here. Uh, God did say that we may eat of any tree. So she kind of corrects him in a sense, but it's kind of fallen into the trap as well. Because she says, but not the tree in the midst of the garden, referring to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We can't eat the fruit of that tree. Neither shall we touch it, lest we die. Which starts to show us here how Eve's heart is already falling because she adds the clause, neither shall you touch it. God never said you shouldn't touch the tree. So, that, so Satan's ploy here is working. He, he's, she's kind of buying into the fact that, yeah, it's kind of unreasonable. We can't even touch the thing. So he, he's starting to... He's, he's introducing these lies, and she's starting to grab on. Yeah, he also said we can't, the spirit of this says, yeah, we can't even touch the thing. Unreasonable, right? Not quite with that spirit, but you can see the seeds of it uh, starting to take root in, in her heart, because God never said that. Eve is buying into the lie that God's demand is over the top. And so Satan now, with Eve taking the bait, snatches the pole back to set the hook in her heart by saying, and here's the lie, you will not surely die. For God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Then Eve sinks her teeth into the fruit of that idea and gives some to Adam, who was foolishly and passively letting this all occur to his wife. And all of this serves as the first sin, uh, which we call the fall, the fall away from God, the fall away from grace, and Satan's uh, respective fall as well out of heaven 
uh, as it's painted more uh, in detail in the book of Revelation, the, the last book of the Bible. So now it's, it's really important, you guys, to understand what exactly just happened here. Don't just glance over this. A lot of you guys have read this a hundred times before. Really understand what just occurred. Okay, this is, this is the moment. Everything here changes. Everything changes. And so what just occurred here, what transpired, what the devil said, what Eve said, uh, what they were reaching for, what the lie was, how this birthed sin in hearts and in the world is crucial, crucial for so many reasons to understand. So for the second thing I want to do here today then is, aside from just summarizing this and looking at the nature of the lie, is the nature of sin. Or what was the lie is the nature of sin. I, I, and this isn't like a comprehensive look. There are other things to say about sin. Like if you pick up a systematic theology book and the doctrine of sin comes up, you'll see more than this. But this, there's nothing more important than this. This is the origins of where uh, sin, godlessness, unrighteousness uh, comes from, the headwaters of it, you could say. Two things from this passage. We'll look at the first one to begin, and then we'll follow with the, the second. Two things. Sin is replacing God with self. And secondarily, sin is a godless reaching for morality. A godless reaching for good things. That's what sin is. Uh, we'll come back to that second one in a second. So the first is, uh, sin is replacing God with self. So if you go back to what Satan was saying, what Eve was kind of entertaining... Sin is replacing God with ourselves, wanting our eyes to be opened, as the devil put it, so that we might be like him, like God. Uh, not dependent on God, maybe tolerating him, but certainly not dependent anymore on him. So that particular aspect of wanting to be like God, rising up into a place where we're like him, and again, in the spirit of what happened that we, we know in heaven with the devil and, and all of his angels, falling away from God, being jealous of him, rebelling against him. He's kind of casting the seeds of this type of rebellion into the hearts of humanity now. So sin is replacing God with ourselves. Pursuing wisdom through other things besides, besides the Lord. Uh, we get whispers of this, uh, you know, in, in culture, and um, I think any time we, and you, you probably have heard these things a lot in your own heart, I know I have, uh, you don't turn on your TV for a few minutes uh, or watch a movie or read a great novel uh, to, to see this in culture. But we get whispers of this idea anytime we ever say or hear someone else say, it's my life. And how many times have you heard that? No, this is my life. Hands off. I decide what happens to me. I, 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 today's a big thing. I dictate what my gender is. It's a big thing for today, right? God doesn't decide that. I dictate what that is. I dictate what, you know, what, what I'm all about, what I'm good at, what kind of the mantra of my life is going to be. I, I dictate these things, my life. You know, but we could, we could push back and say, well, is it? Who said that? You know? I did. Oh, okay. But so that, there's that. Or uh, I'm a really good person. Or the, the, the thought, I, I just need to believe in myself. It's a very common one today. All I need to kind of solve this issue is I just need to believe in myself. That's all I need. And we might, we might tell the kind of coach people with this, right? All you need to do is just believe in yourself and you can do it. Or how dare that person treat me like that? Don't they know who I am? Or I don't need any help. It's not always, always wrong to say that one, but um, pervasively it is. I don't need anybody. I don't need anybody. I don't need God. I don't need any help here. 
Or maybe when we tell our kids, you can do whatever you want in life. It's very American, um, but maybe not the best advice. I, I was watching the Olympics, actually, four years ago. Um, we had our third born right during the Olympics, so it was a great time to have a kid. Just kind of sit in the hospital with Aletha, we just kind of watch Olympics. But there was this commercial on, maybe you guys, some of you guys remember this, that uh, I don't even know what they were selling, but it opened up with this person, this athlete, sitting down on a locker room bench and looking at, looking at the screen, so you're kind of being stared at by this person, and the first lines are something like, in 10 years, you're going to be the best person in the world at what you do. Until then, it's going to be a lot of hard work. So here's my product to kind of help you get there. I know what they're selling. But the point is, it opened up within 10 years, you're going to be the best person in the world at what you do. You know? <laughs> like, what? I've got to watch my, my daughter there just look at this and look at bright eyes. I'm like, lies! You know? It's just untrue. You don't need to hear that. That's an absolute lie to say that. Never tell your kids that. Never tell your... That's not what they need. Because that's never going to be true. No one's the best at anything in the world. No one is. I mean, yeah, is there one person? I guess. But do they even know they're the best? And if they are, they're probably only the best for about a year. Right? We crown champions once a year. And then they, then they lose their trophies. And then someone else is the best. Right? It's a passing thing. I tell my kids actually often, um, <laughs> again, sounds so un-American. Uh, I tell my kids often, uh, you will always, there will always be someone better in the world, in your life, at, at at everything you do in life, there will always be someone better than you. And, and they're fine. They don't like spiral downwards into a sea of depression or anything when I say that. They're fine, you know. They're, they're, but if they know they're loved, this isn't to say that we don't encourage our kids and say, work hard. Hey, you're pretty gifted at that. You're good at that. Pursue that. It's great. They don't need to hear that they can be the best. Or they don't need to hear they can do anything they want if they put their mind to it. Uh, it's, it's not, that's not the most helpful, helpful thing. So all these types of thoughts on various levels there might be versions of these things that are, are less harmful than other versions of them, but all of them have their origin in Genesis 3. Or even theologically, think, are you ever bothered by the fact that the, the Bible, God in the Bible is so tirelessly about his own fame? Do you ever think, that seems kind of arrogant of God to save us for his name's sake, to, to, to desire worship eternally? You ever wondered that? That seems a little bit arrogant. Have you ever not wanted to worship him? Have you ever read yourself into the Bible too much, offended by grace because you wanted more to do? You ever hear a sermon and at the end of the sermon there's not like a list of things to do, there's just rest because you can't do them? <laughs> Does that kind of bother you? Again, all these things find their origin in Genesis 3. They are self-deifying, self-glorifying. They're godless. Romans 3, 12 to 18 says, and I'll just a few clauses from this, I'm paraphrasing, or, or sorry, not paraphrasing, taking a few chunks from the six-verse section. All have turned aside, speaking of humanity in its sinful state. All have gone their own way, away from God. This is Genesis 3 language. The venom of asps, the venom of serpents, is under their lips. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So essentially what this is saying is the venom of Satan, the ultimate asp, the ultimate serpent, the ultimate snake, the venom of Satan is under our lips. And we have said to God, I don't need you. We've all gone astray. We've all gone our own way. This is what sin ultimately is. We've all gone astray. We've said to God, be gone. I don't need you, but stay kind of close because I'll, I'll call you when I need a little help. 
here and there when I need something. But so I'll tolerate you, but, but I, don't, I don't need you. So what this comes down to then, what, and by the way, whether we, whether we say that with, I might be saying that and you're thinking, I don't really do that. You probably functionally do, though. In fact, I know you do because you're human. And this, the Bible says you do. I do. Christian or not, we default. So we might not say, well, I, I hear you saying it that way. I wouldn't put it that way. That's fine. You don't have to put it that way. But, but we all default to that. We're, we're all our own gods. That's, that's the ultimate thing. So what it comes down to is, this comes down to disbelief. Sin is disbelief in God. It, and not in an atheistic kind of way, though it can include that. But I mean it in a, I know you're there, God, but I don't need you kind of way. And so that's the mindset then that leads to the byproducts of things like murder and pride and hate and adultery and envy. Those things are all sins that are harmful to ourselves and people and an offense to God for sure. But those things flow from the headwaters of disbelief, from the headwaters of self-glorification, from the headwaters of rejecting God as all-sufficient. So whenever we're sinning, uh, we're not just committing the sin, we're committing a I-can-do-whatever-I-want uh, kind of posture, sinful posture towards God. If it's sexual sin, it's not just the sexual sin that's the sin. Behind the curtains of that is, I don't care what God says, I'm my own God. I've gone my own way. So in that sense, I'm kind of rising up to the place of him and dictating what my life, don't touch my life, what my life should look like. And don't let anybody else tell me what to do, especially God or including God. So disbelief is the core, is the core thing. This is super important to understand because it says that the right way to live, if you flip all this on its head, if you kind of reverse engineer this thing again, the right way to live, the righteous way to live, the good, holy way to live before God then is what? It's belief, faith, trust in him, seeing him as all-sufficient, remaining a creature so he can be the true creator, submission to him. You talk about a cultural swear word today, submission. Submission to God, saying, I always trust you. Your ways are always right, even if it means pain for me. You know, getting back to that place. But ultimately, the righteous way to live is is by faith, not simply morality. You see the problem, the problem solution uh, kind of dichotomy and relationship here? If, if the problem is we've lost faith in God, the solution is rest- restoration of faith. There's no Ten Commandments here. There's no do not commit adulteries in Genesis 3. There's just don't, com- don't eat from the fruit, of the fruit of this one tree. And the lie, is, the lie actually, Satan is not saying go and do bad things. Right? He's saying just, just eat the fruit of this one tree. What's the big deal? Reach for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Become like God. That's the ultimate sin. If that's the problem, the solution then is is restoring people back to a place of simple trust in God for everything. And later we'll see for salvation, which at this point is sort of they already need because they're already sinning and all of us with them. And so that leads me then to the second part of the nature of sin, which is related, which is Adam and Eve specifically ate the fruit of of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You guys ever thought about this much before? The tree was named. It wasn't a random tree. Uh, there were only two trees that had names. The tree of life, which gave eternal life to, to Adam and Eve. It was in the midst of the garden. 
And this tree that they weren't supposed to, the only tree they weren't supposed to eat from is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Isn't that fascinating that that's the name of the tree? That's the name of the tree that led to death. That's the, that's the fruit of the tree that led to separation and shame when they saw their nakedness and they were hiding from God and making loincloths for themselves. That's the tree that led to hell and to hiding from their creator when that never happened before this. That, that this is what it's called. And not, you know, I was thinking if, if uh, I mean, at this point, if you're reading this for the first time especially, but maybe not, maybe for the 10th or 100th time, you can be thinking, why, why wasn't the tree called like the tree of death? Or the tree of darkness? Or the tree of hell? Or the, the tree of spiritual cancer? You know? Or the tree of eternal poison? <laughs> that, that'd be what I would call it, you know? That, that, that's like, well, make, make it, make it. It's called, the, it's called something that we'd say is good. Knowing the difference between good and evil. It was reaching for that that brought hell into the world. That was the thing God said, no, don't do it. I mean, what other religions do you know that say, do not eat from that tree? What other religions do you know that say, don't eat from the tree of morality? None. I know of none. Every other, other religion starts their, kind of starts their story with, gorge yourself on the tree of morality. Be a good person. Abstain from evil. That's your ultimate ultimate reality but christianity's origin says no to that tree there's a type of godless morality a type of godless wisdom a type of going our own way morality wise that's still from the pit of hell so evil is not just doing evil it's reaching for goodness instead of god that's what happened here reaching for goodness not just disobeying God, reaching for goodness instead of God, as if that were, it's not possible. So just to be clear, it's not like, goodness does not exist apart from God, but, but our, from our perspective, it can, from our sinful perspective. So reaching for goodness apart from God. <clears throat> this is such an important part of the storyline to grasp. It can't be overstated. And to read forward into the rest of this book, to read this whole theme, otherwise you will not understand it, I promise you, or it will just be weird. Uh, the, the problem, again, like I said, always dictates how we understand the remedy. And here the problem was reaching for morality, apart from God, that led to the fall, that turned us inward. And furthermore, death is the eventual problem, uh, not wayward morality. Death is the problem. So the solution Remember, this is how they connect. The solution, then, if those are the problems, the solution will not be from law, from commandment. Do good, and you will get into heaven or the, or the new earth. But the solution will be from God directly and will pertain more to restoring faith. So the problem here, again, is self-deification, making ourselves God, reaching for morality instead of God, and death. The solution, then, is not ultimately about instilling morality, but about restoring faith, which leads to resurrection and recreation. You see the connection there. The problem is on the left. If that's the problem, the solution then is not about instilling morality. That's not the problem. The problem is actually reaching for morality instead of God. The problem is not having faith, not having trust in him. So in death, the solution then is, is related and thusly stated on, on the right. Even the Old Testament picks up on this, and I'll fast forward a bit here through the wisdom uh, books. 
couple places in the Old Testament. Uh, wisdom, the Bible says, is not from eating from the tree of good and evil, but rather wrapped up in fearing God. Proverbs 9, uh, 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Remember what Satan said? If you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, essentially, and it said about Eve, she saw that that fruit would make them wise. Morality will make me wise. Not what the Bible says. Will make you wise is fearing and revering God. Facing him. Believing in him. Submitting to him. Worshiping him. That is wisdom. Ecclesiastes, here's some more wisdom. Ecclesiastes 7, 16 to 18. It's my paraphrase. Uh, don't be overly wicked, but also don't be overly righteous. Don't be too good. That also will lead you away from God. Don't be overly wicked, but it says don't be overly righteous as well. Rather, look to God. Do you guys know the Bible says that? Don't, don't be good? So we've got to understand that, right? What, that, what does that mean? Don't reach for goodness apart from the goodness that's in the Lord. Don't be overly righteous. Also, here's the wisdom. This is actually Solomon writing this as well at the end of his life. He's seen a lot of good people who were hellbound. Good people who weren't God-fearers. Because a category for this. It's possible to be moral and not be saved. In Jesus' ministry, uh, fast forwarding a little bit again to the New Testament, this also explains why Jesus' main, main enemies, besides Satan, were good religious rulers, good, good uh, pastors of the day, uh, who were law-abiding people, but who trusted in themselves too much through it. It's, that's a weird thing if you don't understand Genesis 3 and that tree that was grabbed from. It's strange. Why are the worst of society clinging to Jesus and the best not getting in? Well, it's because they're reaching for the wrong tree. So, and actually, this is from John 8, Now, I, I was mentioning John 8 earlier, but I'll quote this. This is Jesus speaking to Jewish religious leaders. Why do you not understand what I say? Well, here's the answer. It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. This is to good religious people, to be clear. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. And so, He's calling, by all outward appearances, good people, children of the devil, but those individuals are, are strongly resisting Jesus because they trusted more in themselves. They were their own, they were law keepers rather than faith, faith keepers, you could say. He is, uh, Jesus is, what we sometimes say in light of all of this, a third way. A third way that's distinct not just from paganism and evil, but also distinct from goodness. A godless type of goodness, anyway. Uh, that, because when, when Jesus is saying in his ministry, he's not calling people away from, away from evil to good. He's calling people away from evil to himself. He, he's a third way. He's not saying, this is how you, you should live over here and, and, and try harder and do good and eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He's saying, come back to a place of faith and trust in me. Look to the tree of life. Believe in me and you'll be saved. Eat from my flesh and drink my blood. Talking about communion about to be instituted. Come to me and you will be saved. You see the difference? He's his third way, which is what Proverbs and Ecclesiastes were in, in wisdom form, poetic form, we're hinting at. What the whole story is really about. This is why good people aren't getting in and bad people, understanding they need, their, they need the Savior, are. 
with exceptions, of course, but generally that's what's happening in the Gospels. Later, Jesus is called in Romans 3, uh, even going further ahead in, in the New Testament, a type of righteousness apart from law. But now it says the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. The law then, you might be wondering, well, what about the Ten Commandments? Didn't God give morality to Israel? Didn't he command things morality-wise? And he did. There's a lot of reasons why, but one of the big reasons, according to the New Testament, is to actually increase sin. To, to essentially be another form of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So that Israel, when they were eating from it, realized this wasn't saving them. It wasn't working. So they would look elsewhere besides themselves. Again, this is the whole... This is like Genesis 3, over and over and over and over and over again. God wants us to realize we are not the solution to our problems. Even if it's on a good level, like we could spin our wheels our whole life with morals. And that's not the, that's not the point. The law came in, Romans 5 says, to increase sin. So when God says, with a backdrop of Genesis 3, don't commit adultery, and we look at that and say, well, I've done that in my heart about 20,000 times today, uh-oh. That's just one of them. You start looking elsewhere for deliverance. Not to law, not to ourselves, but to God himself. Getting back to pre-Genesis 3, right? Once we're doing that, and we ultimately see the solution in Jesus, he's restoring faith. He's restoring a proper posture towards the creator. Faith, belief, saying, God, you have to do something here. Save me. That's what it's doing. That's what the law did primarily uh, as it was added, millennia after Genesis 3 uh, occurred in, in history. You can see it this way as well. Satan says essentially this. This is, uh, this is what he would love for us on the left here. Uh, by the way, Satan is an angel of light. Uh, he's a serpent in Genesis 3, but if we saw him now, he'd be the most beautiful thing you have ever set your eyes on your entire life. So, again, he's He's calling us to, to good things that are not God things. Sin. Satan says, just be a good person. Love others well. You can do it. Grasp for wisdom. It's always been there right inside you all along. Here's what Jesus says. Come to me. Believe in me. Rest in me. Bask in my love for you. This is what love is. Not that you have loved me or loved others well at all, but I have loved you by giving my life as a sacrifice of atonement for your sins. That's what love is. Do you see the stark difference? The left is a lie. Religion. Hellbound. But it's twisted to be kind of a good thing, you know? I guess I can kind of do that. What if I did that well? Every other religion in the world, left side. Christianity alone, right side. Stark difference. Christ is saving us from our sins, principally the sin of self-deification. The sin of thinking we can do it. The sin of being self-sufficient. So don't think, uh, you know, and I'll, I'll say this to all of you, because I don't know where all of you are spiritually. Um, I'll say this to myself. Don't think that you are a Christian simply because you're a moral person who goes to church. And I, and I know a lot of you know that, but please just pause for a second and think about that. Where are you with that? 
We, we've had people here at Hiawatha, if you didn't know, who have converted from moralism, thinking they were Christians, to actual biblical Christianity, and they were baptized here. Maybe you're the next. Are you the next in line? Is that where you're at? I know some of you probably are in that place of, I thought I knew what Christianity was about. I thought it was about just being a good person. And in the name of Jesus, loving poor people. False. Christianity is about God dying for you, period. Christianity is about restoring it. It's dying for the sin of self-deification. Dying for the sin of self-glorification. Reversing the curse that was wrapped up in what Satan said about that one tree. And Eve's belief, and Adam's belief, uh, in buying into that lie. What happens sometimes then for Christians, and I'll speak to those of you who are believers now, uh, that's a next step from that, from what I just said there, is that sometimes we move from the tree of life, thinking about the Garden of Eden existing now spiritually all around us, moving from the tree of life, meaning we are converted to Christianity, graduating then to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So we're converted by eating from the tree of life, and now to be a strong, mature Christian, we, are, we pursue morality. We eat from that tree. But is that what, the, what was true in the Garden of Eden? Not at all. God said, don't eat from that tree. It's enough that I'm here with you. You want to talk about salvation? Not pursuing morality, just being with God. That's sufficient. Everything was fine. Everything was perfect when there was no morality, just God. Just God showing his grace. Just God feeding. Just God showing up and speaking and, and creating and nourishing and granting a home for people and walking in the cool of the, of the day in the garden around his, his created creatures. That was enough. All hell broke loose when people said, ooh, good and evil, knowing the difference, being like God. I can do it. All hell broke loose. Literally. Until Christ came into the world to absorb all that for us and reverse that, reverse that, uh, that state. So what happens is we can move then from tree of life, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Gospel says, stay with the tree of life all your days. Then goodness will follow because you'll be in a relationship with the only good thing in the universe which is God. Christians believe that the only good thing in the universe is God, and it's not us. Any goodness at all comes from him. And so goodness, God is good, to be clear. This is not about, about immorality and encouraging immorality. This is about seeing God as the only source of good. And we can't grab for goodness without grabbing for him. So eat from the tree of life all your days, the cross, then goodness alone will follow because you'll be in him. At the end of the Bible, too, remember in Revelation, when that garden city is pictured, uh, the, the new earth? Remember what, what tree is going to be there? We talked about this two weeks ago, those of you who were here. What tree is going to be there at the end in that new city, in heaven on earth? Tree of life. Is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil going to be in that new city? If you didn't know, no. God is not going to bring that tree back and now say, okay, now it's okay to eat from it. The only tree we'll look at is the tree of eternal life, which is, as we said two weeks ago, the cross. All right, a couple of things here. Um, 
that we'll, uh, we'll, we'll start to mention this week and we'll come back to this next week. I want to end here, though, because this is all um, really bad news uh, without um, looking at this idea of a whisper of immediate grace. So let's look at that now from Genesis 3, 8 to 9. Let me read this again. It says, and they heard, this is right after sin occurs, they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves in the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? All right. This, I'll call this uh, this this initial post-fall section of scripture, tells us so much about God and about salvation, what the future will hold for humanity. And, and please hear this in context. Adam and Eve just slapped God in the face. In the face. And then it says they hid from him, from his presence. This didn't happen before. They were afraid. Again, this, this shows us that how we went our own way, how we ran in fear and in pride and in sin. Sin instantly separates us from God. What does sin do? It makes people hide from God. Again, it gets back to that same problem, right? It's not just a random, vague sense of morality. It's separation from, from God. Then you hear what, what is, I think, the, <clears throat> the four greatest, <clears throat> excuse me, the four greatest words you'll find in this whole chapter, maybe the whole book, but the Lord God. Look at that and stand in awe. But the Lord God, not then God or and God did this, but but it's, it's, a, it's a contrast linguistically and theologically. Sin happened. He was slapped in the face, but God did something. He called out to the man. He spoke to him. It's amazing, which he does not do for Satan later on, which we'll see next week. He does not let Satan speak. But he talks to the man, uh, and also and also Eve. Next time you sin, uh, by the way, just think about that for a second. Ponder that that's what happened right after Adam and Eve sinned. God moved towards them. God didn't hide. He walks among them. He talks to them. He asks them what happened. Like a parent who <clears throat> does know what happened, but wants the child to speak about it. Parents, you ever done that? You know, you know, you know what happened, but you're like, just what happened, you know? God knows what happened. So he's like, he's like a father here, right? Father God. He's, a, he's asking, he knows what's happened, but he wants them to sit, talk about it. And he does not kill them right away. You know, I mean, there's just layers and layers and layers of patient grace here. This is who God is, you guys. This is who he is towards you right now in your sin, what you brought in towards me. This is paradigmatic of how salvation occurs later in history through Jesus. We're hiding, God's finding. In the greatest game of cosmic hide-and-seek, we're the hider, God's the loving seeker. It's not always wrong to use the words, I found God, talking about our spirituality, but know that it's only because he first found us. No one finds God on their own. No one. Don't listen to that lie. It'll rob you of joy, and it'll, it'll mess with your understanding of salvation. God alone finds and speaks to and saves. We're seeing a, a whisper of that here in Genesis 3. And ultimately, how he's going to come find us is in Luke 19.10. The whisper here is, again, the Lord called to the man in grace and patience. The, the reality in Luke 19 is, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That's what, that's what 
speaking of Jesus as the Son of Man, he, this is what he came to do, to find those who are hiding spiritually, to find those who are lost. You know, God came into the world to actually do finding, not just to kind of sit in a mountain and teach some things, you know, about this is what prayer is about, and you should fast a little bit, and, you know, blah, blah, blah. He, he, he came to seek out the lost sheep like a loving shepherd. This is what God is like, and this is true for you and me. That's how he finds us, though, because with sin in place, we can't get back to him. He died for us. Not just for the fact that we commit sexual sin and deceitfulness and we're, we're hurtful to people on a regular basis and an offense to God in those actions, but also because, and the greatest thing from Genesis 3, is we have committed cosmic treason. Against the king of the universe, we have said, I hate you with our actions. Romans 14 something says, anything that does not proceed from faith is sin. That includes a lot of good things. Anything is not proceed from faith or trusting God is sin. We've all done that. We've all lived even passively as though we're the gods of our own little mini kingdom, the kings of our mini kingdom, the gods of our own mini universes, and that's what he's bleeding for. See, he's dying for the sin, but he's also restoring faith. So when we look at the cross, we're not saying, oh, okay, I, I can't wait to go out and do some good things now. He must want me to go be a good person. We can't stare at the cross and think those ideas. We can't. We're seeing God dying in that manner as a substitute for people. And, and the right posture is to say, God alone has done it. So this is the reality. Genesis 3 is a hint. This is the morality. The tree of morality, you guys, has failed us. But God will succeed. Where the tree of morality fails, God, the tree, this is the tree of life, ultimately, the second one. He will succeed. And as Genesis will unfold, we're going to see how this theme gets pounded home again and again and again. And I want you guys to see this, and, and I, um, part of this is a teaching thing, how time and time again, the whole Bible is set up to help us see this one great and glorious truth. We're not saved by works. We're saved by grace. We're not saved by reaching for the tree of works. We're saved by reaching for the tree of life. That's the tree of life. Don't graduate from that. Worship. Be thankful. Believe. Rest. Cast yourself upon him. You know, and just assume that you're going to wrestle with that the rest of your life because you're a sinner like me. And that's not our natural inclination to look at God and say you're enough. But pray that he'll make, it, he'll make himself enough to you. And, um, and may your spirituality and mine all our days. I mean, people look at us and say, that's a Jesus person right there. Not, oh, that's a good person. Are you a Jesus person? There's a better way to live than being a good person. That's being a gospel person. It's very different. Can you honestly say that about your heart? If you can't, hey, you're in a safe place. That's good. All of us actually can't say that a little bit, but pray accordingly, and, and God will save you, fill you with his spirit, and make you more about him than about your petty agendas in life and mine. Let's pray. God, thank you for today, for your grace in Christ. Thank you for the gospel, which is uh, whispered and shouted in Genesis 3. We are not saved by ourselves or what we do. We're saved by you. And it's sin to think otherwise. It is a hell-worthy sin. Forgive us, God. Forgive us for twisting Christianity in whatever ways we have. 
into a list of do's and don'ts. It never, ever was intended to be that. You didn't die in the way you did so that we might save ourselves some other way. The only way to be saved, the only way to be found by God is through the bloody cross of Christ where Christ dies for sinners in our place and takes that punishment upon himself for our high treason, our cosmic high treason. God, save us from the, all the bad things we do, but also reaching for good things that are apart from you, for striving to be good. Even in your name, it's apart from your prompting. It's apart from belief. It's apart from faith. It's apart from your spirit guiding us, God. So help us to be good, but only, God, by your spirit in the way that you uh, live that with, uh, through us. In Christ's name we pray it all. Amen. Amen. Let's stand as we